0: to connect the dots between food, health and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Stacy Malkin. She is the co-founder and co-director of US Right to Know, a nonprofit organization working for transparency and accountability in our nation's food system. US Right to Know researches what goes on behind the scenes in the food industry, strives to illuminate issues important to consumers, and stands up for the right to know what is in our food and how it affects our health. If her name sounds familiar to you, it's because we spoke in 2012 when Ms. Malkin was media director for the historic California Right to Know ballot initiative to label genetically engineered foods. She is also the former communications director for Healthcare Without Harm, which got mercury out of hospitals and closed down medical waste incinerators around the world. She is also the author of the award-winning book, Not Just a Pretty Face, The Ugly Side of the Beauty Industry, and she is the co-founder of the Campaign for Safe Cosmetics. She has been named one of the five visionaries leading the charge to better health, and she has appeared in many top media outlets and documentary films, including The Human Experiment, produced by Sean Penn, Unacceptable Levels, and Pink Skies. Prior to her work as an environmental health activist, she worked as a journalist and published an investigative newspaper. Stacy, it's great to hear your voice and to have you with me.
1: Thank you so much, Melinda. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I wanted
0: to interview you again because so much has happened since your work on the California Rights to Know ballot initiative, I want to make sure our listeners know about the great work that's going on with U.S. Right to Know. So why don't you start out just by telling me a little bit about how U.S. Right to Know got started and some of the issues that you are most heavily involved with right now.
1: Sure. Sure. So I co-founded U.S. Right to Know with Gary Ruskin, who was the campaign manager on the Proposition 37 ballot fight to label GMOs in California. So we were both in the forefront of that campaign and really witnessed what the massive propaganda machine that went into killing the ballot initiative to label GMOs, despite the huge amount of support, 70% of people were saying they were planning to vote for it, they were for labeling, and then there was so much confusion, untruths, dirty tricks that came out through that campaign, we really both became um, a little bit obsessed with digging deeper and figuring out what's happening um, with this sort of full court press of inaccurate information that we were seeing coming out of universities and coming from dieticians, and others that we suspected were connected to Monsanto, but there wasn't any hard evidence. Um, So we started an investigation. We launched U.S. Right to Know in 2014, and Gary really has been the key driver of the strategies to get information that nobody has had, and he, a tool that he used to do that was the Freedom of Information Act, public records laws. Across the country, we have a U.S. version and then also different state laws requiring that people who are funded publicly have to turn over documents that are created during their publicly funded work. So we were able to get emails from professors and many others who, it turned out, were working with Monsanto but not disclosing the connections, either financial connections or very close contact with their PR firms that have in many cases, ghost-written content or framing papers that professors are writing and putting their names to, and lots of different ways that they are manipulating the information that the public hears about our food system.
0: Mm-hmm. I found it so curious that, as you say, so many consumers, when surveyed, said that they wanted a label on genetically engineered foods, a simple label. And in every state that tried to get a label initiative passed, it failed. And you can correct me, but what I saw in the media was a fear-mongering campaign that was generated stating that if we had these labels, it's A, going to hurt farmers, and B, going to raise the price of food. Were there other strategies, communication messages that came out that were clear red flags that, oh, this is going to cause fear among consumers and defeat the initiative?
1: Definitely fear-mongering is a good way to put it. And they did it in lots of different ways. They claimed it was too confusing, that it would exempt most GMO foods. They actually did very aggressive data mining. They figured out you know which messages work in which communities and then bombarded them. Right up until the last weekend of the election, they spent an enormous amount of money. I think it was $5 million, you know, really targeting certain areas where they saw that with the right confusing messages, they could flip enough people. And so they were able to do that. And and there were lots of just straight up dirty tricks like lying in the California Voters Guide. They were sending mailers from fake front groups claiming to be the Democrats or green groups or librarians and cops. People were getting these mailers from supposed cop groups telling them to vote against Prop 37. So just basically every dirty trick in the book to get that initiative to fail. And then they did it again in Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. And, you know, barely won in most of those places. And then they did lose in Vermont, which passed the legislative... Well, it was passed through the legislature to label GMOs. And so finally... It was a long, very expensive struggle, and in the end, companies did start to label GMOs. Many of them did. Some still are, but they were able to end run it at the federal level with a bill that is, ironically, of course, so confusing. It actually may leave many GMOs unlabeled, so it's just in a very uncertain state as to what's going to happen with GMO labeling And the U.S. Department of Agriculture is going to have a lot of say over that as they decide definitions in the next year or so. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The whole thing was taking power out of the hands of consumers and allowing companies many ways to hide what they're putting in food. That's the bottom line.
0: Exactly. You brought up a really good point that I want to explore with you, and that is the role of front groups. We share similar missions with my program. I am trying to expose food truth. And with U.S. Right to Know, you too are seeking transparency and accountability in our nation's food system. Front groups create quite a snarly thicket for consumers to navigate. And for people who are working and tired and parents and don't have the time to truly investigate who or what is behind the front groups. What are your strategies or tips for those of us who need to be able to find out who is the messenger, right? This is Media Literacy 101. Who owns the message?
1: Right. Who is behind the messages that you're hearing? Who's getting paid? You know, a big clue is are they not open to any sort of feedback or fact-based discussion, a lot of the discussions that you'll see online and a big tactic that the front groups use is they attack people and they stay away from the issues because they're not working with facts. They're working on techniques that are designed to shame people into silence. And one very good resource, I did a report with Friends of the Earth and Anna LaPay called Spinning Food, Mm -hmm. where we really went into the massive propaganda effort, we found that food industry groups were spending over $10 million a year on front groups. And they have names like the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, International Food Information Council, Center for Food Integrity, Center for Consumer Freedom. That group was started by Rick Berman, who's been called the king of corporate front groups and propaganda, and really devised that strategy working for the tobacco industry. So, they come up with neutral sounding names of groups and then just use very consistent messaging and the messages that we found consistently across many groups and it's not just friend groups there are also professors dietitians bloggers that are engaged by the chemical companies to put forth these messages and the messages are very much designed to shut down debate. So pesticides and GMOs are safe and necessary. The science is settled. There's no need for debate. Anybody who's trying to debate is an anti-science zealot. There's a lot of attacks on organic food. It's no better. It's not worth the money. People who eat organic food are elitist nannies. You know, We've seen these messages come pretty consistently from lots of different writers, angles, groups. And so they seem like it must be true. Everybody's saying it. But the biggest sign for me is if there's no room for debate about these issues, then we really need to think about who's putting forth that message. And who it is is an agrochemical industry that is desperate to convince people that the only solution for feeding the world is to have industrial, chemical-intensive, GMO agriculture that they can own and control.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to bring up the fact that you made about there are dietitians who are working for Monsanto and helping to spread this information. And because I am a dietitian myself, I feel like I have to defend my profession and my professional ethics. And there are many of us who see what's going on. There are many of us who are trying to work from within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics to change who and where the money comes from and to expose the truth. But I think it's important for us to understand that it's very difficult to understand these issues if we haven't understood them, say, in our university program. So let me give you an example. When we go through a dietetics program, we learn about food science and we learn about human anatomy and physiology and biochemistry and microbiology, but we don't learn about agroecology. We don't learn about plant science. So when somebody comes to us who's very nice to us and gives us all of this information, we don't question it enough. And I think that's really the take-home message for whether we're talking about a journalist, a health professional, a consumer, is to always question where the information comes from. But when we're a student in a classroom and a professor is giving us this information, we tend not to question that. And that's a big source of where a lot of the information is coming these days. I know that, for example, if you look at any of the land-grant universities, the money to those universities is being tightened all the time. We're losing federal funding, state funding, And so when agribusiness comes with an offer of research dollars, for example, the research questions are controlled. If somebody hands you a set of slides and says, yes, this is the most accurate science, we tend not to question that. And I think that's a source of a problem.
1: It's true. There's an enormous amount of money going from the agrochemical industry to the universities, and a lot of it's hidden. As well, it's sent through the foundations and not disclosed. We've reported about a couple of these instances that have been uncovered. For example, Monsanto gave $5 million to the University of Illinois Foundation over a 10-year period and and also almost $60,000 to a professor, Bruce Chassie, so he could travel, write, and speak about GMOs. Well, Professor Chassie is often quoted and often using the messages that I said earlier. The debate is settled on GMOs, they're totally safe, and anyone who says otherwise is crazy. He's quoted in the AP, and lots of top media saying that, and never disclosed that he was taking money from Monsanto to promote GMOs. And he also set up a front group called Academics Review, which in many places on its website claims to be completely independent, of anyone independent of corporations. They put out a report attacking the organic industry and calling it a marketing scam. And it turned out we found out through emails that we obtained through the U.S. Right to Know investigation. It was set up completely in collaboration with Monsanto as a front group with Monsanto's allies saying they would find funding and find ways to send it to the organization while keeping their fingerprints off of it. It's a very deliberate strategy to confuse, and I think, to your point, you know, raising questions, that's the key message, I think, to get across to everyone. You have to ask questions and challenge what you're hearing, even from the seeming supposed experts and especially if they're resisting questions and creating an atmosphere of no debate or where everything's settled and, and we don't need to even discuss this. And that's a huge red flag. And I think a lot of people are asking questions, and, of course, more and more people are buying organic and learning through their own life experience about the health benefits. And that's so powerful. I think that's why, to get to some good news, that's why we're seeing these incredibly just overwhelming propaganda techniques because this industry really needs to use every avenue to try to convince people, pound people over the head that we have to have chemical intensive agriculture to survive. But it's really about the survival of corporations and not what's best for people and the planet. Exactly.
0: Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Stacey Malkin, co-founder and co-director of U.S. Right to Know, a nonprofit organization working for transparency and accountability in our nation's food system. One of the events where you were speaking was at EcoFarm. This is a big conference in California. It's an agroecological conference with lots of farmers, lots of people who are trying to tell the truth about our food system. And you gave a presentation about spinning food, big foods attack on organic and practical tools to reclaim the debate. So I agree with you totally about asking questions. What kinds of questions do you think we should have out in front of us always to help us navigate some of these confusing messages?
1: Well, where is your funding coming from is a big one, and I think students and universities really need to be asking those questions across the board. I think a lot of students have been asking about funding related to climate change issues in the oil industry, and we need to expand that and look at who's calling the shots on research and influencing what's taught around agriculture and chemicals, toxicology. So whose funding is always a number one, and transparency. Who's willing to be transparent about where their funding comes from? And again, the number two thing I think is just like, are they open to debate? Are people debating facts with you or are they moving to personal shame and silencing tactics? And that's always a red flag if somebody won't tell you where their funding comes from or they won't engage in substance on the debate. We have lots of information on USRTK.org, our investigations page. Please check that out if you want to see the names and front groups that are associated with some of the inaccurate propaganda campaigns that are out there. And some of them are quite influential. I think calling reporters out when they don't mention people's affiliations or they use some of these sources as authoritative sources when they're clearly not. One of the things that surprised me, you mentioned in my bio that I've worked on environmental health issues, for about 15 years of different chemicals, I worked on cosmetics for a long time, and one of the flags for me was some of the most vocal, adamant people out there insisting that GMOs are wonderful, we have to have them, pesticides are totally safe, are the same people that were tacking me over Formaldehyde and baby shampoo, that's totally fine. Lead and lipstick is totally fine. There's no need to worry about BPA or nuclear power or tobacco. It's the same voices using the same tactics, and they're corporate apologists. Basically, they're in the business of denying corporate harm. And I've been looking, too, at a lot of the groups and funders that are behind climate science denial, And all of those groups and funders are also funding these efforts to deny harm of chemical industry products.
0: Hmm. One of the strategies that your group uses is filing these Freedom of Information Act requests. How difficult is that? How strenuous is that whole process?
1: Well, it's a tool that's readily available for anyone to use. The laws are a little bit different in every state, and so some states are better than others. It has to be a publicly funded institution. So universities that are receiving taxpayer money or government agencies need to comply. And then it has to be well thought out about what are you looking for, what are the search terms. My colleague Gary has been very Excellent at figuring that out. And once we've got a lot of documents, we're able to look through them and see who is working with who and then do more rounds to find out more information. Mm -hmm. They are trying to stop that flow of information wherever they can. We're suing the University of California, Davis to try to get documents that we believe we're legally have a right to see and that the public has a right to see. So we are engaging in some lawsuits. We also announced the lawsuit against the FDA to release their documents about the glyphosate review. There's a lot of information coming out from court cases, farmers and their families suing Monsanto over cancer concerns. Some of the documents coming out of those lawsuits are raising serious questions about how much influence Monsanto has had on the FDA's rulings on glyphosate and the science behind it.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting. You mentioned the importance of people not being attacked when they question the science. And I find that that word science is often used against us. So on the one hand, if you raise a question, you're immediately attacked and said you're anti-science. And yet science is based on inquiry, which is so crazy. And one of the strategies that I've seen at my own Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meetings. Of course, Monsanto was in the big expo and giving out information to dietitians, telling us how we need these products to feed the world, how wonderful they are. Never any mention about the increasing use of glyphosate that goes along with the bulk of those GMO crops. But they also are behind GMO Answers, which is a front group. GMO Answers also had a booth at our academy expo, and their strategy is they encourage us to be skeptics and they encourage us to ask questions, which is great, except that the people that are providing the answers, they're the industry.
1: Right, right. GMO Answers, we've written about that. They are at least are open about the fact that they're a front group and they're funded by the big six agrochemical companies. But then they do put forth supposedly independent expert professors, some of whom were getting their answers written for them, we found in our investigation. But it's definitely only a part of the picture and a very pro-industry part of the picture that all of those answers on there <laughs> provide. So it's just straight-up propaganda. It's not independent, and it's to fulfill a certain agenda, which is to promote Monsanto's version of agriculture.
0: hmm Also at the EcoFarm Conference, one of the things that you did during your session was to encourage people to tell the truth. You provided strategies to tell the real story of organic farming and to inspire the public and media and policymakers to support the continued growth of the organic sector. I know why I support organic and agroecological farming, and it's because it is the best way to produce food while also protecting our water and our soil and public health. What did you tell your audience in terms of strategies for telling their story?
1: Well, that was such a fun presentation, and we got a lot of great feedback on it. It was called The Attack on Organic. We wanted, first of all, for folks to know that this is going on, that there are a lot of coordinated efforts to send messages out about the organic industry that are inaccurate and disparaging. And so for people to just know that's going on, I think, is important. But then secondly, to realize that telling our stories, the stories of farmers who have maybe switched from conventional agriculture or figured out ways to do farming in ways that really rely on biodiversity and agroecological strategies, telling your stories is so important. And people are so busy and involved in farming is is a (laughs) um, a lot to put your effort to, but also telling your story about it is so important too. And also people who are choosing organic food for health reasons or for reasons that they have realized through their own experience has made an improvement in their lives. I think that's why organic continues to grow at the rate that it does because people are telling those stories that they weren't able to, help children with allergies, for example, through the, the medical system, but they have been able to find healing through food choices. And so I think it's just keeping those stories out there, connecting with each other to help us promote better, you know, the good news stories about agroecology and organic farming.
0: Mm-hmm. So where are some of the best places to tell these stories? You know, I encourage... People to use letters to the editor and op eds as a way to get into mainstream media. It's a little intimidating, I think, to sit down and write a letter, but I know that these sections of the newspaper are indeed very well read. And there are some good resources online on how to compose a letter to the editor. Certainly, social media is extremely important, although sometimes I think we tend to speak to the choir a lot. And the whole psychology of what happens when, you know, you've got people in a certain frame and when you present facts outside of that frame, it further entrenches the individual's thoughts who are within the opposite frame. So talk to me a little bit about communication strategy in the few minutes we have left.
1: Well, first of all, I think stories of hope and possibility and what's working well are really stories that are desperately needed right now in the world. And so telling the positive story is extremely important. Also correcting the misinformation. So four things. Letters to the editor, absolutely. People do read them. Papers print them. They're short. It's absolutely worth our time to be correcting inaccurate stories or crazing good ones when you see them in major media outlets. Also contacting reporters, letting them know if, if you have additional information on the story they wrote, if they got something wrong, politely of course, getting to know the reporters at local papers. I think local papers still do get read and they still do, you know, they need stories. They're looking for positive stories in the community. So getting to know who's covering the issues and and contacting them, they want to hear from you and they are hearing a lot from people who are giving them inaccurate information, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So letters to the editor, contacting reporters, social media, and I think also blogs and We use blogs a lot, and I think they've. And I notice that the opposition, the people putting out misinformation, are using blogs a lot, and they become really important when journalists are doing Google searches for a topic. For example, if you've written a blog about organic or farming or your experience, and a lot of allies promote it, it can turn out quite high in a Google search where reporters searching for that topic will find you. So I think it's becoming increasingly important to not only write our own stories, but connect with people who can help promote them so that we can make sure to get the search values up there. These are the sorts of things we talked about at EcoFarm, and certainly we invite folks to join up with USRTK.org. We have a listserv where you can keep up with the latest news, use our resources, and some of the other big food groups, Friends of the Earth, Center for Food Safety, Pesticide Action Network—they all have great social media and email presence. And so, you're making sure they see your information, stories—we just need to get better connected as truth tellers and people standing for transparency.
0: Fantastic. Well. We need to wrap up because our time, unfortunately, has come to an end. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank my guest, Stacey Malkin, co-founder and co-director of U.S. Right to Know, a nonprofit organization working for transparency and accountability in our nation's food system. The website is simply www.usrtk. I'll provide a link to that, as well as a link to Spinning Food, which is a terrific one-stop shop to understand a lot of the methods and practices used by front groups and to identify them. Stacey, thank you so much for your work.
1: And thank you, Melinda, for everything you do to put out accurate information about our food system. I really appreciate it.